Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to another edition of Bite Into It. Thrilled to have Mr Dan Salmon. Good evening. And Ms Laura Summers. Hey, hey. Here in studio with me. I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for tuning in. Laura. So tonight on the show, we have a focus on machine learning, where we're, be going, we're going to be asking this surprisingly deep question, what does machine learning know? We'll be speaking to two researchers in two of the major specialties in ML, um, NLP, which is natural language processing, and computer vision, to be getting their perspective on how far down machine knowledge goes. That's going to be Leah Furman from um, Melbourne Uni and Emma Ahmed Rengers, who was working also with the CADE program over the summer and is currently completing her doctorate. And is they're, they're both... Um, very interesting and doing very, very cool research. And I think it will help us illustrate this question, the difference between classifying something and understanding that classification. Yeah, I love the idea of drilling further into not just the the tasks and things that we're trying to do with these um, areas of research, but also the concept of knowledge and, and how it may be expanding or constraining or changing our understanding in that space. Thanks, Laura. That sounds really exciting. Before we get there, a few things in news. Um, yes, one of the most interesting things happening in Australia at the moment is a satellite network that is in the process of being prepped for launch that is intended to detect bushfires within one minute of ignition. So it's a planned constellation of 24 satellites that is intended to orbit in low Earth orbit and give very early detection of any bushfires. And obviously the point being early detection means hopefully uh, improved logistical response and like reducing the potential damage of that, that, um, that fire. Um, but interestingly, it doesn't stop all of the logistical challenges because once we actually know that the bushfire has started, there's still a number of agencies and groups and fireys that need to coordinate their response and know who's doing the coordination. So there are still many additional technical challenges and coordination challenges involved um, once we have that alert. But it's a fascinating and, um, and really cool tech approach to thinking about how we keep people safer and, and prevent the worst of these really big bushfires. Mm, we're lucky to have had a mild season this year, but I think oh. it's still very present in everyone's mind. Absolutely. Wasn't yeah. it a relief? I was mm. just thinking about like January of the year before and like wearing those masks and just the, the smog in the air, the dust mm. in the air. It was so hectic. Yeah, no, it was uh, full on. And yeah, it was nice to not have to wear any masks after after February last year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too <laughs> soon, Dan. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, too soon. It's not even over, guys. Um, I've, I've got a little bit of news. Um, um, in uh, non-fungible token news, uh, of the uh, we all have heard of this uh, ridiculous—I I like to call it ridiculous—trend uh, for uh, digital artworks. And in proof that we are clearly can't be trusted with nice things, um, there are now, ca- uh, I suppose, stolen artworks being sold as non-fungible tokens. Now, uh, many artists around the world are reporting that their work has been sold, uh, stolen, and sold on NFT sites without their knowledge or permission. Generally, it's been scraped from their social media. And, uh, yeah, look, it was only a matter of time. I'm actually surprised it took as long as it did um, because, obviously, when there's a commodity to be, uh, I suppose, traded, traded, Mm. then the first thing that comes in is counterfeits of that. 
So uh, look, it'll be interesting to see whether the, the it goes. I can see it going one of two ways. Either NFTs will become like worthless almost immediately because no one will trust them, or it will just get locked down to the point where it becomes even more, mm. um, I suppose, exclusive. In who knows? There, Guys. there is a mechanism to improve the sort of verification of these NFTs. Like there is like an artist verification which says I am the person who created this artwork. So NFTs being tied to a like unique digital object, um, and the reason artwork is good for that is that. Art has, you know, variations and has, like, weird little quirks that seem to be, you know, organically created. Mm. Uh, I'm going to explore that topic a little bit more on Breakfasters Tech Talk next Tuesday morning around 8.15. We're also going to speak to an academic in that space in a couple of weeks' time on Byte. So if you're interested in the NFT space and getting a little bit more nuanced discussion going on about it, then uh, I do encourage you to tune in at those times. In some other news, Wikimedia is exploring different business models to try and keep themselves alive. You'd be aware that Wikimedia is the organisation behind Wikipedia product and often when you go to the Wikipedia site, it might remind you at certain times of the year if you're using the site that they run on donations and um you know, if you use it, could you contribute? So they've created a new paid service for companies that draw on their data Um they're planning to launch later this year. It's not quite out there yet. Uh, it's called Wikimedia Enterprise, and it's not going to change how the services work, but it will offer um, options for companies that use content to tap into that via a premium version of their API. Mm. So um, rather than just crudely scraping the Wikipedia site, you can formally do it through a set of, you know, requests that handle the traffic to the site and that track your usage of the content. So it's an interesting approach to try and um, keep Wikipedia um, a going concern Mm. and uh, hopefully it will be well received. Is, is there any word on what the how, how they're going to approach Google with that? Because of you know a lot of the time when you do a Google search on a particular topic, it ha- it comes up with you know a nice formatted Wikipedia excerpt at the top of the results page. So will will they start forcing Google to pay, or is it going to be a relationship? That's using the existing API, I believe. Mm. Mm. So I'm assuming that they're going to want to nudge Google to go over to the paid version of the API, but um. I don't know. I mean, not not being like into the world of how you sell into enterprise, I'm not sure how easy that's going to be for them. So I don't have a Google example, but in the past, um, Amazon, for example, have offered donations in return for using Wikimedia's free services. Uh, so I think we need to wait and see what happens here. But it would seem like a very streamlined approach to being able to pay here and, um, and very set. So, yeah. Mm, we'll see. Good approach. Indeed. Good luck. I really hope they stay afloat. Yes. Invaluable resource. Mm. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. It is time to speak to our first interview for the evening. Leah Froman is a lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems at University of Melbourne in the field of natural language processing. Her research interests focus on improving automatic understanding of long and complex texts. She's also interested in using machine learning for a deeper understanding of human language processing and in using such insights to improve automatic language understanding. Seems like a lot of lofty goals here. Um, very happy to welcome Leah Froman to the show. Welcome. Thank you. 
good to have you here. <laughs> Um, I'll hop in and say uh, Leah and I were having a chat a few weeks ago and we were discussing a lot of interesting things related to natural language processing. Um, but I think maybe a fun and possibly challenging place to start for you, Leah, is can you help describe for our listeners like what actually does natural language processing know? Like what is it doing when it suggests words for Alexa to say to us or presents text for a script? Like what is it doing and how does it do it? Sure. So natural language processing is a very wide field with lots of different tasks and research methods that we look at. But one technology that is underpinning increasingly more of natural language processing are language models which also power technologies like Alexa and Siri. Um, and these are basically trained to create language, to predict language on the basis of the start of a sentence, for example, to complete a sentence given a prefix or to predict the next sentence given the first sentence. And what they essentially do is pick up co-occurrences of words from enormous amounts of text. And the general idea, the general technology is decades old, but what is new with these new models is that they are, A, being trained on much, much larger corpora, which are available nowadays, and B, the underlying models are much, much better at capturing long-term dependencies in this text than to generate longer, seemingly coherent pieces of text. So what the language models know ultimately are very intricate co-occurrence statistics of words in, learned from enormous corpora. So to say that back to you, when, when it's learning co-occurrences, does that mean, well, for instance, when I'm in LinkedIn and someone's messaged me saying, hey, Laura, do you want to meet for lunch? It's familiar with like common sort of questions like that and common responses might be like yes or no, like absolutely or no thanks. Um, like is that when you say co-occurrences, do you mean those kinds of patterns where like someone asks a question and the next, next response is an answer? Yes, for example. So the models are trained on these sorts of conversations, but also on newspaper articles very prominently or fictional texts. So they pick up um, coherent sequences of text. Another very recent, I think, fairly um, well-known example is this language model called GPT-3, which has been in the media quite a bit. And uh, the researchers had an example case that it presented the language model with a, a headline of a news article, and then the model went on to generate apparently coherent text of that news article conditioned on the headline that was presented to the model. So that's another example of co-occurrence patterns that it picks up. Leah, does this mean that the models tend to be uh, very skewed towards a particular set of cultural texts so that what might work in an American English language environment might not work in another country's English-speaking environment quite so seamlessly? Yes. So before answering that question, let me just say that um, they, even this example with GPT-3, they do generate seemingly coherent text, but that does not mean at all that this text is sexually accurate or really <laughs> consistent from beginning to end. Yes. So being successful even on standard English language is questionable, or we would need to define that more clearly. But there's obviously also this other problem that huge amounts 
of text are necessary to train these models. Um, and this is easily available for English and a couple of other languages like German or Spanish or Chinese, for example. But for the vast majority of languages in the world, these sheer amounts of data is not available. And then yet another problem is that um, in the available data for English, there are some historical biases. So um, some groups of the English language are more represented than others, and that can lead to the fact that the models developed on the basis of this technology might perform better to some groups of the English language speakers than others. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, the TV show The Wire and thinking like you could you could have a, a model that needed to learn a whole different set of contexts and uh, inferences based on the dialogue of The Wire and the way language is used in that show compared to yeah. maybe like the way we're speaking here on the show. So like there's there's so many um, colloquial and um, location based kind of specificities of the way people use language that um, that maybe the, the size of the data required doesn't allow for you to develop that that level of specificity. Um, and and just to be clear, when we say that you know these models are generating text, does it understand what it's saying? Like, if you can you query the model and say like, what does this mean? Or like, does it does it have any sense of like context or understanding? Or is it just literally like spitting out words that it thinks are right? So the model is trained to spit out the words that seem coherent in the context that it was provided. But um, there's no real background information or grounding information external to the co-occurrences of these words that the model has. So um, you can ask the model to explain a prediction, but this explanation will again be based on the word co-occurrences that it has picked up, but there's no kind of common sense knowledge that we as human speakers have and um, base a lot of the language on that we produce every day. Mm. And that's quite confusing because people can sort of see something that seems conversationally like correct and, and assume perhaps a deeper level of understanding than actually exists there on the other side of the interface. That's completely right. And we have a bias just as humans in general to try to uh, interpret coherence into things that we see or hear. And that means that the language generated, be it by a human or a machine, we always have this tendency to make it seem meaningful to us. So we might be over-interpreting the coherence of the output a little bit. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, I know that you've done some really interesting research um, into uh, some approaches to these um, natural language models that incorporate more than one kind of data input. Um, and I think this could be an interesting segue to, to get a feel for why you're interested in, um, you know, looking at perhaps more than just text and how you think that might enrich the um, you know, labeling capacity or the, you know, level of um, contextualization that these models can do? Sure. Uh, so I think there are two angles from which I'm very interested in this. The first one is cognitive. So when children learn language, they have a lot of contextual information. Visual information, for example, is extremely important. 
the gesture of the parents and the gaze of the parents um, is very um, informative for the child when the child learns how to name certain objects. And I'm very interested to understand how this process works. And I do this by modeling the acquisition process. So building machine learning models that simulate language acquisition. And we hope to um, just learn more about the fundamentals of language acquisition from these models. But also from a more practical side, um, grounding the models um, can have several advantages for um, NLP. So one is that if you have some external database of information of common sense knowledge, for example, you could give your model access to this straight away. And perhaps the model wouldn't necessarily need this huge amount of data any longer to learn every nuance of co-occurrence. So it could make models a little bit more data efficient. It could also make the models more interpretable. If you can check model predictions against the database of facts, for example, explicitly, you wouldn't any longer rely on the model itself providing explanations, for example, for its mm -hmm. predictions. So it could improve the interpretability of models as well. Um, you have a really fascinating paper published, um, which is trying to turn machine learning um, into a whodunit detective looking at historical CSI shows like a crime scene investigation episodes. Um, and I believe in, in that research, you were looking at the interpretability of um, the answers the model was giving you based on sort of this multi-input approach. Um, did you find that that made it more interpretable or that you could have a better sense of why the model was succeeding or failing at identifying who the culprit was, seeing those different, and, and maybe tell us a bit more about the types of inputs you were capturing? Sure. So the idea behind this work was to simulate language understanding in a sort of realistic uh, environment in the sense that we use CSI episodes as input which unfold over time and which have this multiple modalities of input. We used uh, text input from the transcript of the script of the episode. We used visual input from um, the video and also audio input and just the um, background noise and music. And the model was incrementally presented with this information. And as the episode went on, it updated its representation of who a likely perpetrator might be. Um, and we compared this model against humans who we asked to do the same task. So um, what we found was, in terms of which modalities are important, that the text modality is clearly the most informative. Um, and what we also found was that there's still a huge gap from the model to the human. So this was called sort of a, a first step in that whole direction. Gosh, that feels a lot like playing Among Us and um, <laughs> using all those textual cues to figure out that sounds a bit suspicious, you know, <laughs> and it does tell us a lot more than the visuals. <laughs> Oh, mate, I, I would love to have a machine learning model, like read uh, some detective novels for me and tell me who done it. That's pretty cool. Wouldn't it be great? Um, but it's it's interesting. I mean, I guess, um, you know, there's so much, so much more uh, variation with something like a visual or an audio input. So maybe like the like sort of distance to inferring who the bad guy or the bad perpetrator is, I should say, um, <laughs> it might be a little bit more of a reach for the model. Um, but I am really fascinated that you that you tried this multimodal approach and you you weren't relying purely on the text. Um, 
And that, that leads to another question, which I think is an interesting one to discuss in this NLP space, which is, um, you know, you're you're obviously examining this, Lee, and I'd love you to tell us more about it. Like this, a lot of um, machine learning kind of relies purely on this idea of finding patterns over data. But there's another form of knowledge that's talked about in AI, which is symbolic knowledge or knowledge which is, you know, based on types of things or symbols of things. Um, and and I think that's um, a really interesting uh, framing to think about and alternate ways to do ML. Mm -hmm. um, sorry, so there's a question there, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and the question is, like, what is what is your thinking about um, symbolic knowledge for n natural language processing? Is it the next, you know, thing that we need to, to have the next big leap ahead that, you know, beyond GPT-4, like, what's the next thing that we need and to, to make these models more powerful, more sensitive, more human? Um, and, yeah, I'm curious to hear your take on this. Yes, so perhaps for context, up until maybe 20, 30 years ago, most of the research was symbolic, and then there was the huge revolution where best probabilistic models were discovered, and now the deep learning has taken over the field. And for the last couple of decades, indeed, pattern recognition was the mainstream of research, and this has now brought us into a situation where models become bigger and bigger, data sets become larger and larger, and this in combination does lead to some improvement on a lot of tasks, but as we discussed before, there are definitely ceilings there, even for English, but much more so for all the other languages in the world. And I think having some symbolic database, some base of common sense knowledge, for example, can is one of the promising ways to alleviate this need for more and more data, definitely. And it can also be a way to hold models better to account so that models need to, or we can probe models by checking them against text in our symbolic databases. So are there any models, the symbolic models like this, that, that do exist that help um, help understand these areas? Yeah, there's some ongoing research. Um, for example, question answering is a very um, common task in natural language processing where we build models that can answer certain questions, be they factual, like what is the capital of the USA, or maybe more open-ended. And um, pure text-based models do well on them, but there's also existing research which tries to incorporate a database of common sense into these models so that um, very mundane, common-sense-based questions can be answered better. And this exact common-sense knowledge is something that can be very hard to find in text, actually, because we all share it and we very rarely talk about things like, before we leave the restaurant, we have to pay the bill. It's just something <laughs> that we very rarely see in text at all. And, and even, even your scripts common... for television might exclude all of that boring, um, natural, yeah. common behaviour. Yeah, well, exactly. the things that are, are um, inferred or implied, like we yeah. all knew we have to do it. Yeah. Um, Leah mentioned yeah. a really interesting example before we were chatting, um, which is that we talk a lot about the black sheep, but the black sheep is the exception, not the rule. And the sort of implicit knowledge there is that the white sheep is the base, is the, the thing that we expect to see. Um, and that's yeah. something that like a model can't learn just by looking at text. Mm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It does sound extraordinary, literally. Uh, literal, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's what you would think. 
Yeah. Well, Good like example. a kid, a kid is going to learn that once from their mom and then know forever um, or their dad. Obviously. And then there, there's going to be the other kid who tweets out 20 years later. I just found out <laughs> that I'm the black sheep and that it doesn't mean this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, I'm, I, I sort of feel like we're, we're coming up on the edge of our time, Leah. Um, but thank you so much for chatting to us. This is such a fascinating space. And I, I have so many more like bullet points of things for us to talk to that we didn't catch. But um, uh, perhaps, um, is there anything else you would like to offer our listeners before we close off um, about what you think is interesting or important to know about NLP in the wild? Um, I think it is important to hold ourselves accountable as researchers to be sure that our models generalize well to new tasks across different demographies and so forth, um, and that they are equally useful across groups of users, and that's a very active area of research and not trivial to achieve at all, given the biases that are in the data that we chatted about. So I think this is the way forward and, yeah, one of the focus points of current research. Well, thanks so much for bringing some broader understanding to us in this space. We've been speaking to Leah Freeman from the University of Melbourne on bias in natural language processing models. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. With an undergraduate degree in politics, psychology, law and economics, and then a master's in law, Emma... Ahmed Rengas decided to complement her legal training with courses in computer science and recently participated in the Centre for Artificial Intelligence and Digital Ethics summer program while pursuing a PhD on the topic, The Responsible Governance of Computer Vision Technologies. It all sounds incredibly fascinating. She's based in Wales and is indulging us with this very early morning call her time. So thanks so much for joining us, Emma. Welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's our pleasure. Um, your piece in the Cade Summer Program caught our eye, um, which was released, uh, gosh, a month ago now, which is called Abu Ghraib and Witches. What might go wrong if we let AI predict violence from images? Um, and the entire piece is fascinating, but I, just for those who haven't had a read of it, um, I'd love to start with inviting you to just give our re- um, listeners a, a quick summary of what you explored and what you discovered in that work. Yeah, sure. So um, my research is about uh, computer vision technologies and sort of the legal and political implications of those technologies. Um, And it was, I think, just a random Tuesday night when I was just sort of looking at the latest stuff that's out there um, uh, on computer vision technologies. And I I found uh, Google's Cloud Vision API and it said it made some interesting claims uh, about what it was able to do. And one of those claims was that it was able to detect violence in images. So I thought, okay, let's let's test that. Um, and it generously just lets you um, input your own uh, images and then it will give you um, its thoughts uh, on uh, the image. So I tried really the most violent images that I could find online um, of yeah, all kinds of horrible things, uh, including war crimes, um, riots, um, really uh, militaristic propaganda, things like that. Um, And interestingly, none of the images were actually classified as being violent. Um, And one of the most striking ones that um, I tried was this image of um, a detainee in the um, Abu Ghraib uh, prison in Iraq. Uh, And this is a very... um, 
a very famous image of torture. This detainee's hooded is standing on top of a box with electrical wires hooked up to his fingers. Um, and the system actually did not classify it as a violent image. Instead, it said that this was probably um, an image of a witch hat, um, and uh, it also associated the term costume accessory with it. Uh, and so I thought that was quite um, disturbing. Um, so yeah, that was um, what the piece was about. It really is. I'm looking at the classification right now, um, and the, seeing the safety of it being ranked so highly is, you know, like it's all kind of green bars and saying it's unlikely to be adult, it's unlikely to be violent, it's unlikely to be medical, and it's it's this like incredibly distressing image. Um, and then knowing knowing that, um, you know, this is an API which is spitting out a visualization which is meant for people, but then people are building things where there's no person looking at the classification and the image before something is done with that image, whether it's put into someone's newsfeed or, you know, shared um, somewhere or otherwise recommended for them to look at. Um, so the idea that um, these uh, sort of this classification of violence could have gone so far wrong would would you like to um, speculate on how that might have happened? Um, I'm, I'm curious, and like obviously knowing that you weren't involved in the people building this classifier, so I won't I won't hold you to account. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. So um, I think there are a few things that can be said about just generally this idea of classifying images as being violent or nonviolent. Um, the first thing is just the concept of violence. Um, it is actually, if you just look at the concept from sort of political theory or, or philosophy, it's really not clear um, what violence actually is and what the criteria are for a, a violent act or a violent image. Um, so that is the first part where it can really go wrong, um, because the way that computer vision systems learn how to see is that they get fed images um, by humans uh, who then tell them what is in the image. And so if you tell a human being um, to tell a computer what is in an image and you have concepts like violence which are very abstract and also very contested um, there is a lot that can go wrong there um, the second thing is that I think violence is very much a, a social or a socially situated concept um, and recognizing violence even if you do have a very clear definition of violence would still require some social understanding of what's going on in a particular image um, and computer vision systems, um, the way they are now, really are not um, able to do that very well. Um, there are some computer scientists who argue that this is all coming in the future, that they're working on it, um, on this kind of context-aware or common-sense AI. Um, but generally, I'm, I'm quite skeptical of that. So do we think um, the developers who built this classification just put in a bunch of Kill Bill kind of bloody gory images and they decided that was what violence was and there wasn't anything else to consider? I'm really not quite sure what they did because I did really look for those kinds of images and try see if it would classify that as violent and it still didn't. Um, so I'm not sure. But if, even if they did that, there were still some questions also about ethics um, of making, you know, there are some people who are uh, labeling these kinds of images. If you're really going to give them really, really awful, disturbing images. Um, there are also questions about the ethics of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a really excellent documentary called The Cleaners, which talks about the yeah. psychological harm of people um, doing content moderation for really disturbing imagery. Um, 
And yes, as you say, like in order to teach a machine what um, a, a terrible concept like violence or torture is, you have to label that and mm. label it correctly. To, to what extent do you think we will be able to solve the issues around providing context around images um, when trying to get machines to classify them? I, I guess I, I look at this in contrast to, say, classification boards who have traditionally looked at film or literature in a country and have tried to solve things, definitely led by humans and committees of people, uh, but still, you know, having a clear context in which to read a particular text um, versus finding an image somewhere on the internet. Um, you know, to what extent is it useful looking at domain that it's come from or what have you? And is there enough context even to work with here to begin to have a fighting chance? So I think the question of context is um, quite interesting uh, because also in, in the field of philosophy and the philosophy of science, um, there has been a lot of work on how humans understand context, and it's not as simple as some computer scientists assume. Um, so the goal of some of these computer scientists is to sort of mimic human intelligence and, and human understanding of context, but that really assumes that there is one way in which humans understand contexts. Um, and yeah, so in the in the in some philosophical schools of thought, um, this concept or this idea is really very much contested um, because if we think about how humans understand things like texts or images or just social situations, um, we see that it is very much an exercise of interpretation. Um, and um, so there is this school of thought which is called hermeneutics, um, which is traditionally um, about Bible interpretation. So how do we understand the Bible? Um, and this is very much grounded in the idea that there is one meaning of the Bible, right? It's the word of God. So it has one meaning that um, is really in there. And if we only try to interpret it using this particular method that uses context, we will really understand what is in there, like the meaning that already exists out there. Now, this is, of course, very much contested um, because, you know, it is very fair to ask, is it really true that in sort of social situations, there is one meaning out there that is just waiting to be discovered? Um, or is it the case that we pick and choose our contexts um, to uh, make sense of a situation, to create meaning, uh, rather than uh, discover it? And so the, the choice of context is actually very much a political exercise, um, and it's not something that is sort of just given by us naturally um, by the situation. Just to, just to give a very clear example of this, um, you know, recently we've seen a lot of footage from, for example, the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, and, you know, there are people saying that these protesters are violent, they're dangerous. Um, but obviously the way you look at what these people are doing very much depends on how you conceptualize the context of their actions. And doing that is, a, is very much a political debate. I mean, some people would say um, this is just about, you know, 21st century America where everyone is equal under the Constitution and so these people are just making a lot of noise about nothing, while, you know, other people would argue that no, you really completely get the context right. This is also about a larger history of slavery and white supremacy and imperialism, and that is relevant for the context. So context very much depends on relevance, which, you know, as I think is clear now, uh, is very much a subjective um, exercise. So I think that's something that we should be aware of when we talk about developing AI systems that can be context aware, that there is not necessarily such a thing as the context of an image or the context of an action. 
But Emma, computer scientists don't like that bloody subjectivity that you're talking about. They want things clear and precise and Boolean, you know, zero or one. Um, yeah, that's nice, but then don't <laughs> engage with the real world. <laughs> it's true, and it's fair. Like, if you're going to engage with classifying things about people and behavior in the world, it's going to be muddy, and that's just the nature of the beast. Um, I'm really interested in the sort of uh, the, the challenge of understanding context and the subjectivity inherent that you're describing. And, and um, just listening to you talk made me think of qualia and this idea that, you know, all of our experiences are subjective to our own, you know, to the lens of our bodies and our, you know, body-mind connection at the time that we're in the world and that there's no perfect sort of objective truth. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that maybe that's one thing that's worth describing in, in this field is that um, computer scientists sort of have this concept of ground truth. Like there's a label, which is the correct label, which is the thing that you're looking at. And if you can just, you know, get the right person to put the label on, then you will get there. Um, but even this idea of ground truth itself may be something that needs further debate and further explanation. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on this, because I think it's quite relevant, especially in computer vision. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, the ground truth is indeed the label that we attach, that humans attach to a particular image, which uh, computers then learn from. Um, yeah, I actually had a discussion about this this process with um, some lawyers, because uh, I'm, I'm a lawyer by background, and they were actually very shocked by this term, ground truth, um, that, that computer scientists seriously use this term. Um, but yeah, the way that machine learning systems um, work right now, um, at least supervised learning, um, is that yeah, we need this ground truth to really teach um, computer vision systems uh, about things. Uh, so it's really very much part of um, yeah, what computer vision does now. Um, so it's not easy to see a way around that. Um, what we can do is just to challenge uh, uh, how these ground truths are arrived at. Um, and make that transparent, although although I can see that, um, yeah, that is still a very big challenge. Perhaps you could um, tell us a bit more about how image corpora were created and some of the, like there's been some fairly um, public uh, problems, discoveries with some of the big image corpora and the way that those labels have been arrived at that might be um, worth worth discussing. Yeah, so is there any specific example that you're thinking of? Oh, I was thinking of, um, I've just lost the name of the model, but the one that was using Amazon Mechanical Turk um, to label all of the images. And there was a bunch of, um, there was a bunch of problems where images of women had uh, pejorative terms assigned to them. And there was a lot of um, problematic language around, uh, especially like sex workers and women. And it had been primarily labeled by, um, 17 and 18 year old young, um, men. So I, I'm sorry that I'm just like absolutely blanking <laughs> on the name of the, the, <laughs> the right. corporate. No, there are but, indeed mm. quite, um, big problems with, um, also just a question of labor here. Um, who is doing this labeling? Um, what are the labor conditions of these people? Are, have they been trained? Um, are they just random people on the internet who just needed uh, money? Um, and that is uh, something that you would find on um, Amazon Mechanical Turk. Um, just people who like doing this uh, to just get some extra cash when they're on the way back home or something like that. Um, that is quite problematic if you hire um, such people. And also just the labor conditions of these people are just not very good at all. 
Um, but that really depends on um, on the computer vision project. So I think it is also fair to give some more credit to those researchers who really pick um, the people who do the labeling very carefully and give them very thorough training and very thorough instructions and also publish these instructions that they give to those who label their images. Um, so there are people who deal with this in a much more responsible way. But yeah, there are also cases um, of... Uh, yeah, groups of uh, researchers just sort of outsourcing this to untrained people. Um, and yeah, that's where you can see a lot of problems. But yeah, even if you do train the people who label the data, um, there are still a lot of questions on, you know, who writes these instructions? What are the assumptions um, behind this? Um, what, yeah, are, so what are their subconscious biases? What, what, like, Possibly, well, like, yeah, yeah, or even explicit biases. I mean, mm. when we've looked at the um, the system for recommendations of parole, um, granting parole in the states, in the, this particular, the, comp the compass algorithm. That's yeah. right, that one um, where they were basing it on past data, which already was incredibly skewed. Um, we saw we saw problems. What do you think about? Um, grassroots efforts to create their own um, catalogs of, say, diverse human faces. What do you think about some of those efforts? Um, well, it would, of course, very much depend on the specific um, effort and the specific system that they're trying to challenge. Mm. Um, but I think we should be careful with focusing so much on, you know, having the correct labels or having very diverse training data um, because it might make us overlook the broader context in which these systems are actually developed and employed. Um, and so I think what I try to do in my research is to, you know, definitely look at how the systems work in a very technical way, a very detailed, um, uh, yeah, sort of computer science perspective, but also look at how are these systems employed in the real world? Um, what are the power structures that already exist, which are sort of going to inherit these systems? Um, and so what are the power dynamics that exist when they are actually um, deployed in the real world? Um, and so I think that's not very much a question of, um, you know, machine bias or, mm. or, or bias in data. Um, that is very much a question of who is using the system and, and for what purposes. Yeah, and what so we ask of the data. Actually, mm. Yeah, and so actually creating more diverse data sets or, you know, for example, um, there have been a lot of complaints about fa facial recognition and how it doesn't work very well in black faces. You know, that is obviously a big problem because it leads to um, misidentification of, of black people, which is can be very dangerous for them. Um, and so, you know, you could try to then collect more data on, on black faces and make it very accurate. But that, of course, kind of sidesteps the whole problem um, of over-policing of these communities, you know, surveillance of these communities, which, which can, again, be, be dangerous for these people. So um, I think it's important to yeah, definitely look into bias in data, um, but also question the existence of these systems in their broader contexts um, and the political effects and social effects of these systems. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. We shouldn't simply accept that these things are inevitable or that they have to exist simply because they currently do. Um, Emma, I'm so sorry, but we're out of time, so we're going to have to wrap up there. We've been listening to Emma Ahmed Rengers, who came onto the show to speak about her piece um, as part of the Cade Summer Program, which is the Melbourne University um, program, which is a interdisciplinary approach to computer ethics and AI ethics. Triple. 
we've uh, got a few things to talk to you guys about to take advantage of over the next week or so. We certainly do. Uh, Mobile Muster has a campaign on all through March. I noticed that they've paid for a few bits of advertising in social media, which is really great. What they have is a Go For Zero campaign, which is all about trying to get people to recycle all the old mobile phones they have around the place. They also can help advise you on... um, recycling other pieces of electronic tech. But the focus is mobile phones at the moment. I myself am guilty of having a couple of these around the house and there's always that imperative to delete them and clear them up and everything. There is guidance on their site that gives you some help about how you can feel safe about getting rid of your tech. You can find your nearest outlet to drop things off uh, at mobilemuster.com.au. They can also, um, if you can't drop something off, they can also give you a mailing satchel or you can pick one up from Australia Post um, and you can put in a request on their website as well for that if it's just not convenient for you. So it's a really significant thing that you can do. There's a lot of... um, there's a lot of precious metals and things that can be recycled. Rare earth from, metals. Yeah, do. inside your mobile. Yeah. And um, the idea that we kind of upgrade less often is great. Um, if you happen to be at a loose end tomorrow night, there is a event being run by Vic ICT for Women called Isoproof Professional Networking, um, presented by Naomi Pollock. And that's up on Eventbrite. If you look up Isoproof Professional Networking, Oh, minus the cringe factor. <laughs> you'll, <laughs> you'll find it. Excellent. Absolutely. And um, Melbourne Knowledge Week is coming up. It's uh, about three weeks away, and um, we're, we're very excited to have a uh, look at their, at their program as it comes up. Hopefully there'll be some in-person stuff to go along with. It's always a great week of you know interesting ideas across... A whole lot, whole range of disciplines, um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll definitely yeah. be getting out and, and enjoying some. Well, of that stuff. and I've got to flag some self interest there. Uh, Digital Rights Watch will be running a surveillance walk that you'll be able to explore the city of Melbourne and think about a little bit about where your data is being collected as you do that. So do keep an eye out for that. Um, some great work by my colleagues there. I think that's fascinating. I love the idea of knowing where the eyes are as you wander through the city and and the other mm. senses, all sorts of senses. Mm. Yeah. So thank. Thank you to our guests this evening, Leah Freeman and Emma Emmed Rengers, and thanks to my co-host Laura Summers. So good to see you, Dan Salmon. Also excellent to see you and your amazing COVID beard. Thanks to our talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it. It's been such a pleasure focusing on what machine learning knows with you this evening. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.